book of Revelation, chapter 5. When we began our study in the book of Revelation, I mentioned some principles that should help us in our study, and I thought it might be good at this point to review them uh, just to keep us on track. I gave, I outlined seven principles for reading and studying Revelation. First of all, the book of Revelation is intended to reveal, not conceal, thus it is called the Revelation. Secondly, it is a book that is to be seen. The symbolism is critical to this book. Thirdly, it only makes sense in light of the Old Testament, and I think that's very important. Um, fourthly, numbers are important in Revelation. Fifthly, it is written to a church under attack, that is to say the church during John's time, but also the church since then. Sixthly, it concerns that which must soon take place. Uh, that is, it's not about the future, some idle curiosity. It is rather to prepare God's people for what is about to happen. It is to fortify God's people, to give them hope as well as to call them to holy living in the midst of these, these attacks that will be unceasing. And seventh, the victory belongs to God and to his Christ. Let me just say something about the symbolism of it in the Bible, but in the book of Revelation particularly. The meaning of a symbol is not whatever we choose to assign to it. Uh, John did not create this book of images out of his own imagination. Uh, we need to look elsewhere in Scripture to find out what is intended. And so in our passage today, uh, we see the Lord Jesus Christ presented as a lion and as a lamb. And not because he thinks that these are pretty pictures, but because of the connotations of lions and lambs in the Bible that have already been established in Scripture. So we don't have the right to say, oh yeah, I, I've been to the zoo, I, I've seen a lion, I know what a lion is, or I've watched the Discovery Channel and I, I know what a lion is, or I know what a lamb is. No, you have to look at these images, these symbols in the light of the rest of Scripture, particularly the Old Testament. Um, then you'll begin to get a sense of where John is headed. Now, if this is true of the symbols that we do understand, lion and lamb, I think those will be fairly clear as we go through. What about those that are more difficult? I think we need to understand something. And there are two principles that I gave you uh, when we started. First of all, all of creation is primarily symbolic. That is, creation is a revelation of God. It reflects his glory. It reflects some aspect of his nature. We, are, after all, are made in God's image. And so, in a real sense, we are symbolic of the reality of God. Secondly, symbolism is based on analogy. It isn't some type of code that this equals that. Okay. It isn't said to, I think, to evoke a certain sense in us uh, rather than to sort of spell it out uh, in words that would be very clear to us. And so the language of symbolism in the Bible is, is very evocative um, rather than discursive. Okay. Just... By way of review. Last Sunday we saw that John was summoned to heaven, to the presence of God, so that God might show him what must take place after this. That is to say, John has been summoned into the presence of the King of Kings to hear his plans, his judgments, his purposes, and then to convey that message to God's people. 
He is brought to the throne room of God so that he can see what is about to happen from the correct vantage point, from God's point of view. God is the, the determiner of all things. He alone has a right understanding of the world. And if we are to have a right understanding, we must begin looking at things from God's perspective, the one who is the center of all reality. And I think as we went through chapter 4, and if you, if you weren't with us, maybe you get a chance to read it later, um, we should be reminded of the place of mystery as John is in the presence of God. Because as we saw last week, what is striking is how restrained John's description is. I mean, I think we want a lot more detail. And rather, he speaks as the one, of the one who sits on the throne as being like jasper and carnelian, which are basically uh, translucent uh, quartzes, you know, through which light may pass or like. And I mean, come on, give us more. I, I think it is appropriate that when we think of being in the presence of God, that we have a sense of mystery. What John gives us is not image, but color and texture. And not direct color and texture, but through the use of simile. And I, I think for modern people, we're just highly dissatisfied with this. We, we want the facts. We want him to give us all the details. And he doesn't do that. What he does tell us is that when you are in the presence of God, you find God being worshipped. And God is worshipped by his creation, which is represented by the four living creatures. And he is worshipped by his new creation, the church, which is represented by the 24 elders. In chapters 4 and 5, and we will look at chapter 5 today, we have five different occasions, five different uh, expressions of praise and of worship that come from those who are in the presence of God. As I said last week, the four living creatures, I think, represent a creation. The one who has a head like a lion, one like an ox, one like a man, one like a flying eagle. Um, and they say, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That is, they speak of his holiness, his omnipotence and his eternality. And I don't know if I said this last week in the sermon or in conversations afterwards, but I think that all of God's creation worships him. Whether they acknowledge him or not, their very existence is, in fact, praise and worship to the eternal God. And I, I find this particularly striking in, in light of what Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, which the Lord willing, Emily will read to us next week. Uh, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature, his eternality, okay, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. That is, all of creation, in fact, is praising and worshiping God, whether they know it or not. Even unregenerate people, those who are atheists, those who deny the existence of God. Again, Noah is told after the flood, uh, about uh, human life. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. And in a, in a very strange way, I think very hard for us to understand, when a person kills another human being, they are being confronted by the image of God in that person. 
And like it or not, it is in a sense an acknowledging of God, his holiness, his eternality, and his omnipotence. The living creatures lead the way and then the church follows. Uh, The living creatures, one of whom is man, we might even say unregenerate man, those who do not acknowledge God, but those who do acknowledge him, the church, they join in and they fall down before him who sits on the throne. They worship him, they lay their crowns before him, and then they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. It is within this context of unceasing praise that John will be told what is going to happen. But the context is still being set, and we see this in chapter 5. Let's go uh, verse by verse. Let's begin with verse number 1 here in Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writings on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Let's stop there. John's attention is, is drawn to the right hand, not literally a hand, but to the right hand of him who sits on the throne, and there he sees a scroll. Um, it is marked by two things. It has writing on both sides, and it has seven seals. Now, the writing on both sides, for us, might not seem particularly unusual, because we don't do scrolls, we do books, and if you have a book that's printed, you have printing on both sides, otherwise it's sort of a waste of, of paper. But in John's time, it was very, very uncommon to write on both sides of a scroll. You only wrote on one side. And part of that was the construction of a scroll. They were usually made of one of two types of materials. Those made of papyrus, and then those that were vellum, which were made of animal skin. I'll tell you quickly, when you made papyrus, when you made paper out of papyrus, you had two layers of the leaves of the papyrus. On the one side, you would put the leaves horizontally, and then you would put a glue, and then on the back side, you would put them vertically. Which meant that the inside would be horizontal because people in Greek or Hebrew, whatever they wrote in Latin, they wrote horizontally. Now, if you turn the scroll over and wrote on the back side, you'd be writing against the grain because you had all of these vertical leaves going. So people only wrote on the inside where the leaves were horizontal. If you used vellum or parchment, this was made from animal skin, which they would prepare. And the inside of the animal skin, the interior, that was a lot better used for writing. The outside, you know, to somehow get all the hair off and and the roughness of the skin was very, very difficult and expensive. So people would only prepare one side and write on the inside and then roll up the scroll. So when John sees a scroll that's written on both sides, we need to understand that's a very unusual thing. That, in his context, in his culture, that was very, very unusual. However, to those who know the Old Testament, at least two lights should go off almost immediately. The first would be found in the book of Exodus, chapter 32, when we are told about the Ten Commandments, and I don't know if you knew this, but when Moses got the... we, we read, Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony of his in his hands, They were inscribed on both sides, back, front and back. See, we usually have a picture of Charlton Heston, you know, with with the tablets of stone and the, the writing is all there on one side, you know, two tablets. No, front and back. So immediately if you hear, oh, there's writing on both sides, 
I think the first thought that comes to mind is the Ten Commandments. But those were tablets of stone. Those weren't scrolls. In Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel has, I'm sorry, Ezekiel chapter 2, he has a vision. I read, Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning. Words of lament from lamentation and mourning. This, I think, is the symbol that is driving what John is writing here. And so when he sees a scroll that has writing on both sides, I think his readers, they might start out with the Ten Commandments, but I think very quickly they go to Ezekiel chapter 2 and they're like, oh yes, Ezekiel had a vision like this as well. What about the fact that it's sealed with seven seals? Okay. You see, it's great that you have a scroll, but if it's sealed, you're not, you're not able to read it. Um, in John's world, you would have wax seals, which would bear the insignia of the person who wrote it or the person who was in authority. They were usually sealed in the same way we do it today for privacy. You don't want the mailman reading your letters, so you seal it. Uh, make sure that you have some privacy. But also, it meant that only the right person would read it, unless someone broke the law. A sealed scroll cannot be read unless the seals are broken. This is sort of important for, in John's case because he's now going to be told by God what is going to happen. Apparently it's on this scroll, but the scroll is sealed and he's not able to read it. In Isaiah, there's a fascinating verse, Isaiah 29:11. God says to Isaiah, For you this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in a scroll. And if you give the scroll to someone who can read and say to him, read this, please, he will answer, I can't. It's sealed. So in the same way, John is being given a scroll. He's seeing the scroll, but he can't read it because it is sealed. But why seven seals? For us, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't really mean anything. Uh, there was a time, I think, back in the 70s when everyone was sort of enamored with the idea of putting a wax seal on your envelope, you know, and putting your initial there. But seven? I mean, that's a lot of wax. I mean, that seems, seems like it's redundant and sort of useless. Well, in John's time, whenever you wrote your last will and testament, you wrote it on a scroll, and then it was sealed with seven seals. You would have seven witnesses and each of the witnesses would put their seal on each seal. And if possible, after you died, if the seven witnesses were still alive, they would come in and each would break the seal that he or she had stamped their insignia on so that then the will could be read. So what we have here, I believe, is a testament, a will, I think by extension, a covenant. Um, the New Testament, the new covenant of which Jesus is the mediator. Now, I think it's important that people have wills, because if you don't, the government sort of will come in and decide how things will be taken care of. But one of the things about wills is it spells out who gets what. That's usually what people think about. Ooh, what did I get? Um, but it also has what we call sanctions. That is, 
this is what's supposed to be done and if this is not done then these are the things that will be a result Uh, in the old covenant the old testament if you wish we have very specific sanctions if you do not live up to the terms of this covenant of this testament certain things will happen to you and I would submit to you we won't get to it till next week and beyond but what happens in the book of Revelation are the sanctions of the covenant they did not keep the covenant and therefore they suffered the consequences but still we don't know what's in the scroll what's in the scroll look at verses 2, 3 and 4 And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. There's a serious problem. No one is worthy. No one has the right to break the seals and to open the scroll. And in fact, there is a mighty angel. John sees this angel who proclaims who is worthy to do this. But apparently no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. Now if you think about it, this is a startling uh, assertion. You're in the presence of God Almighty, the Lord God Almighty, and, there, and you have the four living creatures, and you have the 24 elders, and no one, no one is worthy to open this? Well, if we understand that this is a testament, a will, a covenant, then only the executor, only the mediator, is the one who is, has the right to look at the will. And in scripture we have mediators of various covenants. Noah with the Noahic covenant. Abraham, Moses. And Moses generally in the New Testament is referred to as a mediator of the old covenant. Um, but David. But all of these mediators are inadequate. We need one who is adequate. One who is worthy. And only the mediator of the covenant, the mediator between God and man, can open this. So in a very real sense, not even God himself who sits on the throne can open this. Only the mediator of the covenant can do this. Now, the implication, and it's not said directly, but I mean, the reason that John has been commissioned to do this job is to tell the churches what is about to happen so that they can prepare themselves. Now, if the information is in the scroll and the implication that it is, then it's not going to do the churches any good unless the scroll is opened. And this is the reason that we read that John weeps and weeps because there is no one who can open the scroll. There's something else, and I want to make this clear. It isn't simply a matter of information. Like, Oh, I want to know what's in the scroll. I want to know what's in the will. The executor not only has the right to read the will, but has the authority to execute the will. 
And so who has the authority to open it and then to execute the judgments that are prescribed in it? Verse number five. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. John is told, don't weep. There is someone who is in fact able. And we're told three things about this one who is able. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And this goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 49, before Jacob died, he called his sons together and he pronounced a blessing on each of them. And on his fourth son, interestingly enough, not the first, uh, Reuben, or Levi or Simeon, but the fourth son, Judah. He says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. Clearly a messianic prophecy. Messiah will come from the tribe of Judah. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is also the root of David. This isn't exactly what we're expecting to hear. We're more accustomed to what we find in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah where we are told that a branch, a shoot, will come from the stem of of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. So that from the Davidic line, there, the Messiah will come and he will come as a branch. Um, here he's described as the root. It's like, okay, something's wrong here because you have David and then hundreds of years later, then you have the Messiah. The problem, I think, is our understanding of history in which we, like it or not, tend to see things as purely cause and effect. Uh, very domino-like, if you wish, and going in a chronological succession. That is, something happens in the past and it affects the present and then you have the future. This is true to a certain extent, but it is not the whole truth. And it is, in many ways, more evolutionary, more progressive than it is biblical in its orientation. History, biblically, is not simply a case of the past affecting the future. It is also true that the future determines the past. Now, such of you, I think, would be rejected out of hand uh, by people who are like open theists because they think that God doesn't know what's going to happen in the future and therefore he cannot determine what is going to happen now. But you know what? Even in our lives, as finite and as limited as we are, many times our future determines our past and our present. And the example is given, that's not original with me. Supposing somebody comes over to your house in, in the morning and they see you packing a lunch. And they're like, what are you doing? Well, I'm packing a lunch. And why are you doing that? Well, because I'm going to have a picnic. I'm going to go over to the park today and I'm going to have a picnic. Now, the picnic is a future event. But it determines your actions in the present, and one might even say in the past, because you're packing a lunch in order to have a picnic in the future. Chronologically, the picnic comes later. The, the lunch comes first. But logically, 
the picnic precedes the lunch. It is because you're going to have a picnic that you prepare the lunch. In the same way, because there is a Messiah that is coming, then David's line has significance. So Jesus is the root of David. It is because Messiah will come that David's family has the significance that it does. That's why we have that the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament, Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And this is actually a verse that Jesus used to confound his enemies. How can David call his descendant his Lord? Well, because Jesus is the root of David. The third thing we are told is that he has triumphed. In the closing of the letter to the church in Laodicea, we find these words. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus is the overcomer. He has triumphed. He has conquered. And as we saw in chapters 2 and 3, to be an overcomer is to stand with him. The one who has triumphed, the one who has overcome, to be an overcomer is to stand with him. And one might say, well, what exactly has he overcome? I think this should be self-evident, but it will become clear as we go along. He has overcome sin. He has overcome death. He has overcome Satan. He has overcome all that stands in opposition to God's rule. And therefore, he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So John is told, there is someone who can do this. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. Look, if you would, at verses 6 and 7. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. One could almost imagine that John, who is weeping and weeping, and he hears this voice saying, Hey, don't worry. Don't weep. There is someone who is able. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John turns to look, and he looks at the throne, and what he sees is a lamb. Not a lion, but a lamb. And not, not some kind of you know, warm, fuzzy, cuddly lamb, but a lamb that looks like it's been killed. A lamb that has been killed. Which I, w- I would just say that on the face of it would not be a particularly attractive picture. And certainly not if you're expecting to be looking at a lion. Um, I think it is obvious that the lion and the lamb are the same. The lion is the lamb. But we find the first of many paradoxes that we will find throughout uh, this vision. The conquering lion, the warrior of David's line, the Messiah, the champion of God's people appears before John as a lamb who has been slaughtered and yet is still alive. In describing the lamb, John tells us that he has seven horns, he has seven eyes. The seven eyes are explained. These are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, and we have seen this previously. It refers to the Holy Spirit, um, the sevenfold spirit of God. Uh, And it refers to God's omnipresence. And that's why Jesus can say to each of the churches, I know your deeds. I know what's going on there. 
because of the work of the Spirit. What about the seven horns? In the Old Testament, horn tended to represent one of two things, or the two put together. First is honor. Um, but more often than not, it referred to strength. And that is why when you get into the book of Ezekiel and Daniel, and you, and you see all these images of animals with horns, uh, these represent kings and kingdoms. It's interesting that Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, when he's finally able to speak and he sings, the first things he says are, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And so we see that the Lamb is not only has the Spirit of God, but has honor, has strength. He can, in fact, open the scroll. He can execute the conditions that are written on this scroll. And so he takes the scroll from the hand of him who sits on the throne. And now, I think, probably not what we would expect, and maybe not even what we would want at this point, is we find the, the living creatures, the 24 elders, angels, thousands upon thousands of angels, and all of creation joining in and worshiping the Lamb. Look, if you would, at verses 8 uh, through 14 to the end of the chapter. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The rest of this chapter is dedicated to the praise and the worship of the Lamb. It begins with the four living creatures and the 24 elders. It moves on to the angels, thousands upon thousands, and then it moves on Finally, all of creation joins in. We have three songs that are found in this passage. Uh, by the way, in chapters, chapter 4, we have two, two statements, if you wish, two occasions, expressions of praise. But they are said, they are spoken. Here in chapter 5, we have the expressions of praise that are sung. It begins with the four living creatures and the elders, and they each have a harp, and each one has golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Hold on to this thought because when we get to chapter 6 and 8, the prayers of the saints are incredibly important to what John has to say to the churches at his time. The focus, however, at this point is on the new song. 
The idea of the new song is found in the Old Testament. Seven times in the Old Testament we read the phrase, a new song. And it always comes about in response to what God has done. God redeems his people, God saves his people, he delivers his people, and therefore a new song is sung. The first new song, if you wish, that we find in the Old Testament is a song of Moses. It's found in Exodus 15. After Pharaoh and his army are destroyed in the Red Sea, Israel's been delivered out of Egypt, and Moses composes a new song. By the way, this song is fairly important when we get to chapter 15 in Revelation. The song of Moses and the song of the Lamb are intertwined to make a new song. But something more miraculous here has happened than the Exodus. The Exodus was quite astounding. Uh, a nation of slaves is freed. They're able to leave. They're out of bondage. They escape through the Red Sea. It is an amazing story. But it pales in comparison to what the Lamb has done. You see, when Israel left, they had the Passover Lamb. They had to put the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost. That's how they were able to get out. Now it is the Lamb of God, which not simply from the Jewish people or from one particular nation, but from every tribe and language and people and nation, the Lamb has purchased people for God. And he has purchased them so that they might be a kingdom of priests to serve our God. Then the angels join in, thousands upon thousands, ten thousand times ten thousand. By the way, I discovered something this week that I didn't know, but the word myriad, uh, which uh, is in our hymn, O Thou in Whose Presence, myriad means ten thousand. So myriad upon myriad, ten thousand times ten thousand. And obviously John did not have a calculator. You know, he didn't have a little thing to click every time an angel went by to make sure that there were, you know, it is not an exact number. It is rather speaking of just this immense number of angelic beings that are circling the four living creatures, the 24 elders, as they circle the throne and they sing praise. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive honor or to receive power and wealth, wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then all of creation joins in to worship the Lamb. And the living creatures say, Amen. That is, so be it. You're right. This is the way that it is. And the 24 elders fell down in worship. Well, you know what? We still haven't gotten to the things that must happen. But I think at this point, we need to talk about something. I think part of our problem in reading the book of Revelation and studying it, and maybe with a lot of prophetic literature, is that we're asking the wrong questions. I think we just tend to ask the wrong question. We want to know, okay, what's in the scroll? Okay, you found somebody who can open it. Open it, we want to know what's inside. And we're just like the disciples. Do you remember the story? It's, it's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They are with Jesus, they're outside the temple, and uh, Herod's temple was magnificent. It was, it was something to behold, and the disciples were just sort of in awe of this magnificent architecture. Uh, and they're, they're saying to Jesus, look, I mean, this, the temple, it's wonderful. And Jesus says to them, by the way, I'll let you know uh, that the time is coming when this, this building will be completely destroyed. 
one stone will not be on top of another. And that's saying something because they had immense rocks that were used to build this temple. And what did the disciples say? When is this going to happen? What will be the signs of, the coming, of your coming and the end of the age? When will this happen? Interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't answer that question. He doesn't tell them the when of what is going to happen. Rather, he focuses on the why and the what for. In fact, if you think about it, if we were more childlike, if somebody said, you know what, this temple, it's going to be destroyed. I mean, what do kids always ask? Why? Why? As we get older, the whys, I think, are not as important. We, don't, we want to know when. And so when it comes to the prophetic writings, we want to know when. When is this going to happen? Okay, John, you're supposed to know what's going to happen pretty soon. When is it going to happen? Open the scroll. Come on, open the scroll. We want to know what's in there. What's in there? Again, the disciples. Jesus had been crucified. He had been buried. He had been raised from the dead. He had been with them for 40 days. It's the day of his ascension. And he tells them, um, wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. That is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, and what did the disciples say? Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Are we there yet? Is it, is it time? When? When? And Jesus answers them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. That is, Jesus is much more concerned with the why than the when. See, Jesus tells his disciples, okay, listen, I came here, I taught you, I gave my life, I was raised from the dead, I'm going to heaven, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and the reason, the why for this, is so that you can be witnesses for me. The reason I have done this is so that you can do the things I've called you to do. But the disciples are far too much like us. They don't, they don't care about the reason. They want to know when. When are things going to happen? And I think when we come to the book of Revelation, chapter 5 particularly, and we have all this praise and praise, we're like, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get to the good stuff, okay? When are things going to happen? What's, what is in the scroll? And we're asking the wrong question. Worship is to be driven by the question, why? Why do we worship God? Why do we worship the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we even ask ourselves that? In heaven, it begins with the four living creatures and the 24 elders and then the angels in creation. They worship based on why. You are worthy because this is what you have done. I just found as I went through this passage that finally you find someone who is worthy to open the scroll. I mean, you couldn't find anybody in heaven or earth and you finally find someone and then these people just start singing. I'm like, no, let's get to the scroll. I want to see what's in the scroll. And I realize I'm asking the wrong question. Our worship is to be driven by why. The reason that we worship. But I also thought, when do we ask the question why? 
when things don't happen the way we think they should, when things go badly. Then that's when that magical word comes up, why? Why did this happen? Why? And does it drive us to worship God? No, usually it drives us in the opposite direction. I think we should learn from chapter 5 and sort of reorient our thinking, ask the right questions at the right time. We should be focused on worshiping God. And we worship him, the reason being because of what he has done. And we worship the Lord Jesus Christ because he is worthy, because he was slain, because he gave his life. I think if we do that, then we will have a much different view of the book of Revelation. We will see it, as many do, as a book of praise, a worship service in which God's creatures worship him because he created them. They know the reason. It is response. The Lord willing, we will come back to chapter 5 a bit more next week. Uh, it's felt that in, in reading this chapter as a modern man, I might miss what John is trying to get across. That we are to worship God. We're not to focus on the whens and the whats. God will tell us that if he wants to. We should focus on the whys. And why should drive us to worship should drive us to worship. Let's pray together. Our Father, I thank you for your wisdom that you don't always answer our questions. Because most of the time it seems we're asking the wrong question. When it comes to your word, we want to somehow decode it and find a roadmap to the present or to the future. Somehow get out of the present and know what, in fact, is going to happen down the road. Instead, you've revealed yourself that we might worship you because you created us. You sent your son. He gave his life. He is worthy. You are to be praised and you are to be worshipped. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, who is the Root of David, who has overcome, who has triumphed, but above all, who is the Lamb who gave his life, that we might have life. I pray that in the days to come, we would meditate on what we've talked about here today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand, please? We'll sing the doxology together.
to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen.